1: Welcome to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Sam Miller set off for Derry in Northern Ireland with his brother and a mate to protest on January 30th, 1972. A day that would lead to Sam spending years in prison, suffering beatings and torture. Bloody Sunday, the Battle of Long Kesh, the blanket protest, Sam was involved in all of it. Once he got out of prison, he headed to New York where he got involved in illegal casinos before masterminding one of the biggest robberies in American history. Sam is going to talk you through how he did it, how he originally got away with it, how he got caught, and then how President Bill Clinton intervened. Sam, thank you very much for coming on the show.
2: Uh, thank you for inviting me, I appreciate it. Absolutely,
1: no, my pleasure. Your book, The Brinks, is amazing, and I've read it and gone through it, and it does read like a piece of fiction, and I just want to go through... I want to go through your life story and get that out in this interview. Now, your introduction to the Troubles in Northern Ireland was pretty intense. Can you tell me about your day on the 30th of January 1972?
2: Well, it was a day that my brother asked me to go with him to a place called Derry. I didn't really know where Derry was. All I knew, I was getting out of Belfast And anywhere to get out is, shithole, I jumped at the chance, you know. So to cut a long story short, I got to Derry with my brother and a friend, and we didn't realize it at that time but something terrible was about to happen. When we got into Derry, we could hear all these shots being fired, and we could smell this terrible gas, CS, CR gas, all over the place. And while we were trying to get into Derry, we were stopped numerous times by the British Army and the RUC, and it ended up, being a day called Bloody Sunday, where thirteen people were murdered by British paratroopers, and it was a day that changed my life forever. I was only a young boy. I was only like just after fifteen. I just got through my sixteenth birthday coming on, and it changed my whole outlook and life forever.
1: It's a song that U 2s written about as well. It's a famous, famous day in, in Irish history, isn't it?
2: Well, yes. It's an infamous day, really. You know, with people uh, marching for civil rights, Catholics trying to be treated as equal citizens in their own country instead of being treated like second-class citizens, which we were at that particular time. So people were just doing these marches for freedom and for equal rights. There were peaceful protests, just people marching. But it ended up people being murdered.
1: Did you see people get murdered?
2: No, I did not see anybody. I heard all the screams. I witnessed the shooting. I could hear... Gunfire far right close beside me a couple of streets away but at this time my brother was trying to get me out of the area he knew something terrible was happening we didn't know of course that people were just being shot down in the street you know we this, but we knew from our experience at Belfast we needed to get out as quickly as possible
1: so you got out of there and then things didn't really improve for you you, you had a friend called Jim Kirk can you tell me about him
2: Well, shortly after this, a couple of weeks after, my friend Jim Kerr, you know, both of us had just got out of school, so we had a whole life ahead of us, you know, what we were going to work at and all this. We were playing a bit of football outside my home, and he had just got a job in a garage, and I was so envious of him because I had to start work in an abattoir the very next day. It's a slaughterhouse. Horrible, horrible place. Ugh. Yeah, terrible, especially for a young boy like me who loved animals and all. But, you know, as a Catholic, it was the only job I could get. It was just a, a total nightmare. So I was very envious of Jim because he was going to work in a garage, had to fix motor cars. He was really into all this. But he promised me a first chance he got, he would try and get me a job in the garage also working for this company. So I, I kept that in the back of my head of one day I'm going to get out of this slaughterhouse and me and Jim will be working in a garage fixing cars. Sadly, about a week later, Jim was in the garage fixing cars underneath it when uh, these loyalist terrorists came in and shot him numerous times in the head simply because he was a Catholic. And when he died, it broke my heart, but it also changed me. It hardened me into understanding that being a Catholic or nationalist here in the north of Ireland, there was no way you could do peaceful marches anymore or believe that peace would come eventually if all you did was talk. Something needed to be done. So you joined the IRA? Yes, I joined the IRA. A couple of months later, I was arrested by a British army and I was the first Catholic to be done under infamous Diploc courts. They were military-style courts set up by the British government. No jury, just a British judge. And I was sentenced to three years for being in the IRA. At that time, everyone was being fined £30, £40. So I was expecting to be fined. But when he, he hit Hit me with three years in prison it was like my life is finished. I couldn't believe it, you know. And here was me, like I was just turned seventeen now, and my whole life ahead of me just finished as a teenager. I was me finished.
1: And what what did they what did they do you for?
2: They did me for being a member of an illegal organisation, which I found quite uh, funny, you know, because there's all these loyalists, terrorists running around, and not being put in prison, and here I was, a young Catholic, defending my own neighbourhood. And all of a sudden, I'm going to Longcash, which is a hellhole local prison. And I was going there for three years. You were
1: there for the infamous Battle of Longcash as well, weren't you, in, in
2: prison? I was indeed. The conditions were horrendous. And we kept trying, you know, different methods, protesting to uh, try and improve the conditions in the food. But the prison authorities, the governor and the screws, wasn't having any of it, you know. We did our best to try peaceful methods, talking to them, explain the situations that we are all living in here. We're like caged animals, you know. But they didn't listen. So eventually we got to decide that there was only one alternative, and that was to burn the whole place down. It holds about 30 maybe prisons inside itself. It's quite a massive. It used to be an old British Army, RAF, Air Force Base. And this is where they they built these old Second World War Nissan huts to store all the uh, political prisoners in. And we just one day, just to say that that was it, we've had enough. We went out, burned the whole place to ground. So you lit the
1: whole place on fire?
2: Set the whole place on fire. With, the, the flames were seen everywhere in the north of Ireland. Like you could see it from right down to Belfast. This is a Lisburn we're talking, so you could see it for miles and miles away. It got massive coverage all around the world. At the time, it was great. And when you're thinking, oh, yeah, we've burned these place. We've gotten a bit of a victory, you know. But, of course, when the cold day light sets in the next morning and you look... And there's all these tanks and Saracens from a British army coming in towards you, you know, you're going to get the shit kicked out of you, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I laugh at it all now, you know, the, the madness of it all. You're going to take on the might of the British army and you, you don't have anything. All you have is a wooden club. Yeah. You know, and the, I'm sure the, the, the British army were killing themselves laughing. Looking at the state of us going to go up against them, as with their big tanks and their armored cars and their helicopters. Our helicopters were coming right down on top of us with a the gas. They were throwing the canisters of gas down on top of our heads, you know?
1: What was the gas like? Didn't you hallucinate? Didn't you think you were in, yes. in Disneyland or something?
2: Yeah, the experiment that this is new, they had never done this before this gas. It was called CR gas. It was banned by the United Nations. The Americans used it in Vietnam, but it was banned, or the whole world banned it because it was horrendous. It didn't know what it would do to people. But I can tell you what it did to me, you know, because uh, first thing you do is you think you're on fire. You think your whole clothes, every size so ripping my clothes off. Everybody's ripping their clothes off because we've, we've seen these flames, you know, these invisible flames burning our bodies. So we're all ripping their clothes off, so, you know. Then the next thing, I was uh, there was a bit of hand to hand combat with different British soldiers and things like this, you know. But I always thought I was fighting Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, you know, because they all turned into these cartoon characters. And I was like hitting them, and I could see the big pal coming out. You know, like the words that just see in a cartoon, P-O-W, pal. Pal, thud. Yes. (laughs) That was all coming out, you know, and it was bizarre, you know, and I was like, all of a sudden, I was getting hit in the head with battens by the British Army, you know, but I couldn't feel anything. I was sort of laughing when they were hitting me, you know, and I was giggling and laughing. I was ripping my clothes off and I was getting hit in the head with the battens, but the more I got hit, the more I was laughing, you know, it's quite bizarre, you know. But the M was banned. Once people found out that the British government had used this on us, it was banned by Britain.
1: Right. You were in there for three years, right? Yes. And then you get out, and it's not long before you're locked up again.
2: That's correct. I I returned to active service with the Irish Republican Army. The, The British were still in my country. And as I said before, we had talked and talked and talked. They weren't going to go anywhere. They'd been here The English had been in my country for 800 years. I don't believe anyone has a right to be in anyone's country, occupied, no matter who they are or what they call themselves. So I went back again to using force against force. Lo and behold, about a year later, I was captured by the British Army again. And this time I was given 10 years in prison.
1: You were sent to the infamous H-blocks,
2: weren't you? The H-blocks were being built right about 1974 after the burning because the uh, Conservative government said never again would they have political prisoners be able to freely run around their prisons doing what they wanted. And at the same time, they were trying to take away political status from us, rac- not recognizing us any longer as prisoners of war. Margaret Thatcher tried to initiate this by saying there's no longer any political prisoners in the north of Ireland. They're all criminals, which was all nonsense, of course, but they were building these blocks, which were designed by the Nazis during the Second World War, the same design to gas the Jewish people. So we sort of I found that ironic, you know, they were are getting put into these terrible hate blocks and they were frightening to look at. They're shaped like a H and inside it, there, there are four prisons. In the middle of the H is it controlled by the screws. So you have about six or seven of these H blocks spread throughout the whole place. You know, we're hundreds of hundreds of local prisoners inside them. You're inside a cell, tiny, tiny cell, no bigger than your kitchen. And you're naked, except for a rough, rough blanket that covers your privates. But the rest of you are completely naked. You have no furniture, no books, no TV, not nothing. You've absolutely, when I say you have nothing, I mean nothing. You've just got this rough, hairy blanket, as we used to call them because they were like billow pads, quite rough on the skin, and they were very tiny, just enough to cover your privacy. Not nothing to read, nothing to write with, no communications, no news, no TV, no radio, no noise. It was all to break you down and destroy you as a human being.
1: Wasn't the naked part, wasn't that part of a protest?
2: You were asked to uh, wear a criminal uniform. When you came into the uh, reception area, as they called it, in the hit blacks, the screws would be maybe 10, 15 screws waiting for you and they would have this big brown uniform ask you to put it on well I wasn't a criminal I my acts were all political and I refused and when I refused I started they started beating me up and then they stripped my little clothes I had they kept me naked and they were still beating away at me then they got me by the ankles because I refused to walk because they wanted me on the walk naked from the reception which is a good Good stretch of walking up to the hate blocks i refused to walk naked anywhere you know humiliation i wasn't going to let them do this to me so they trailed me up by the ankles naked it's quite rough because it was like tarmac you know they're trailing up this road it's all made of tarmac and it rips right into your skin you know and the pebbles stick into your skin for months i had still pebbles in my my spine and everywhere else for months after because they don't come out they wait for you in the reception along with governor you're naked, you've been beaten up, blood's pouring out of you, and the governor's looking at you, but he's not saying anything. He's just asking you, like a robot, what's your name? What are you in for? Why are you standing there naked? And all this sort of silly talk. It's like something out of Monty Python. It's quite horrendous because been, you know, he would say silly things like me. He says, like, how did you get those cuts? And it, right behind me, is these screws were all these bloody battens, you know, and the screws have got their, their shirts open and the sweats pouring out of them. And it didn't take it to be Sherlock Holmes. To figure out you know where i got all these bruises i got all these black eyes and all this stuff you know but he had to go through all this whole rigmarole of pretending to be you know worried about you you know so after he ran through it i was brought down into a cell after you know i got a jolly good beating, as the screws says you know and i was put into the cell there's a small blanket waiting for you and it's it's hard to explain the size of this thing it's like a large handkerchief you know it's just enough to go around your waist and it's made of this real rough, rough material. So you put that around you to cover your privacy, give you a wee bit of dignity, sort of thing. As no our clothes, because the screw will say to you, if you want clothes, you want a bed, you want a mattress, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, come with us, we we'll put you up in the, the wing with criminals. Or if you acknowledge you're a criminal, we we'll give you all this stuff. But being a political prisoner, I wasn't born mm-hmm. to do that. So that is where that's what I had for years. I just had this rough blanket. That's all I wore. For eight years? Yeah, you know, I was in for eight and a half years, but I would say six of that was on the blanket protest. Six oh. and a half years of that was on the blanket protest. How often were you beaten? It depended really on the screw, who was in charge of the screws. They were quite sectarian. You know, 99% of them were from Loyalist areas, you know. Protestant Loyalists, pro, pro-British, pro plus there a lot of English screws that come over, a lot of Scottish screws had come over. And you can, you know, understand they didn't have very much sympathy with you being in the area or being Irish Catholic, you're up against a, a total force of paramilitary screws, more or less, you know. Most screws to me are cards and bullies, and are very sadistic. I think of being bullied in their, their lives when they were kids or something. Something makes a person become a screw. Very strange to me. Why would you want to enjoy locking people up? These people had a political agenda, because most of them are associated with loyalist organisations. The Orange Order, in particular, which is a notorious anti-Catholic organisations like a Klu Klux Klan in America towards blacks. So you had all these members of the Orange Order who were, were screws, you know, and they had the free will to do what they wish on you, you know, and they just upped the ante. They, did, they came up with more statistic measures, how to try and break you. It was all a measure trying to break you, you know.
1: Trying to get you to admit that you're a criminal so that you'd go and put some clothes on and go to another wing and get a nice bed.
2: Exactly. Trying to get you off a wing, we had a term for it. It was called squeaky booting. That's a term prisoners use for it because if you agreed to go to another wing, they give you these boots and when you put them on, they squeak, you know, because they were brand new leather boots and there was a squeaky squeak sound off them. So there was a term called squeaky booting A any prisoner who came off the protest. Very few prisoners did come off, but there was some.
1: Didn't you protest the beatings at one point? You guys...
2: We had nothing, so you're, you know, you're sitting thinking here, I've got no weapons. I'm getting beat up every day, you know. You're just trying to endure something, so you're not doing any, You're not inflicting anything on the enemy. So you're thinking, how can I stop these screws and beating me? So the next thing we came up with was the No Wars protest, and what it meant was instead of slapping out, going with our slapouts and going up, the, up a wing to the toilet and throwing out the, any crap that we had, any excrement from the night before, we would actually spread it all over ourselves over the cell doors, is horrible, I you know. It achieve worse than you, know, you had to do it, you know, because you've, you've come to rock bottom.
1: Didn't you chuck some out the window at one point?
2: Yes, well, it was all, it became like a guerrilla warfare, you know, because you were throwing it out the window because you, you didn't like it at the start. This is how it all started getting spread on the walls because we were throwing it out the, out the windows. And we thought, well, that's it, that's what we'll do. We'll throw it all out the windows instead of slapping out. And then the next thing, the screws came around with big gloves on. They started lifting it, throwing it back in, you know, trying to hit you with it. You know, it was, it's not a nice thought, you know. Oh. So we decided then there's no point in throwing this out the window because all we're doing is giving them weapons to use against us, our own shape, you know. Mm. So we kept it this time. We kept it in the cell and we started to spread it all over the wall as if we were painting the cells. And the cells were just in a matter of minutes, matter of hours. They went from pure white. The brown and that's what happened for years that's how we lived
1: the prison officers didn't they board up the windows and turn the heaters up
2: yes what they used to do was during the winter they had these special windows that would remove them turned off all the pipes so you'd be freezing i mean i'm talking about freezing we actually had a record breaking out one time in winter and i never felt cold like it in my life i just felt numb this went on for hours went on the next day next couple of days, and then the summer would come, the great weather, and they'd board up all the windows, so there was very little air coming in, and then they would put the, the pipes up full blast.
1: So when the cells were boarded up and they had the heating on and there was
2: the walls were covered in your own excrement,
1: were they not, like, maggots and that kind of stuff, like, was it? Yeah,
2: well, whenever you left any, any of your food, because they, they weren't collecting any, you'd never get an awful lot of food, but what little food you have, we used to put it in the corner. Well, because of the heat and the flies... Maggots started to form everywhere. So you'd wake up at night and the maggots would be in your mouth, be in your ears, and your nose, you know, because the maggots started to take over the entire place, you know. There were hundreds of thousands of maggots just everywhere. So that became quite horrendous. So when you were sleeping, like you were trying to keep a bit of something in your mouth to block it all off, you know. But I can tell you, I never tasted maggots before this, you know, and they weren't too bad. You know, I wouldn't recommend them all the time, but, you know, if you're hungry, they're not too bad you know it's a bit of a de- delicacy you know
1: full of protein apparently aren't they
2: oh look that's poor protein you know what i mean so you've got plenty of muscles you know if you keep eating them you know
0: <laughs> i'm nick friedman i'm lee alec murray and i'm leah president and this is crunchyroll presents the anime effect so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Were you in the cell by yourself or were there other people?
2: No, I was in the cell at the start. There was two of us. Then they separated us. They were separating the prisoners because they thought two prisoners it's, it's, it's easy enough to handle one prisoner in a fight, you know, to come in with battens. But two, they didn't like it. They didn't like the odds against two prisoners against six screws, you know. So they sort of went to keep kept you in a, a cell on your own so they could manage you more, you know, when they were taking you out, giving you beatings or whatever, you know. So eventually they ended up, we were all mostly in cells on our own, you know.
1: You, you would be in the cell next to someone for eight years in the, in, the, yeah. in, the, in the cell next door. And you had no idea what they looked like, right?
2: No, no idea at all. You'd meet people say eight or nine years later, hadn't a clue. And he would say, You and I were next door to each other. And all you had was this voice to go, and you're trying to picture this voice. There was one guy next door to me called T-Pat. And if you heard his voice, you'd think he's a big, big guy, seven foot. But when I met him, he's only a little small guy like me, you know, the way your imagination tries to think when they hear a voice, you know. So you never got to really see anybody. It was very strange not seeing human beings.
1: Oh, it's just meant to us so crazy to, to think like that. It, the One of the guards that was particularly sadistic was a guy called the Human Wart.
2: Oh, yeah, that scumbag. He had
1: some interesting methods, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he was a, a real evil, evil chap. Uh, he used to carry his little uh, zoo, like a hangman's noose. He always carried it with him. And when we were get, going through wing shifts...
1: What are wing shifts?
2: A wing shift is when the screws wanted to clean the cells from all the excrement, because after months, human rights groups started kicking up about the conditions we were living in. So you thought, well, the screws are going to just uh, give us a new cell or something. But what they do was they'd move you at the middle of the night or in the mornings, and then be completely naked, and you're getting examined. They're sticking your, their fingers up your arse and all this sort of nonsense. And then after they've stuck their fingers in your arse without gloves, this is, you know, no gloves. Then they're poking your mouth with the same finger that they just poked your backside with, you know. Not you know, it's all it's all just to dehumanize you. And each screw, you know, each screw had their own way. But this particular screw, we called him the human work. He was quite evil. And he used to carry about with him this little hangman's noose. And when you were naked and they're squatting you over these mirrors, because they're looking up your arse to see if you have anything up your arse, you know. It was all nonsense. You didn't have anything because we never we didn't have anything to bloody cells, hardly. He would have this little noose, and he'd try and capture your penis, wrap this little hangman's noose around your penis, and then pull. And that's what he'd get you, pull you up, you know, make you stand up by pulling you like that, you, you know, and he'd be like, up, up, boy, up, boy, you know, like you just never forgot this guy, you know. And he enjoyed it so much, you know. And the things that happened afterwards sort of proved to us because he was he ended up being convicted of being a paedophile against his nephews and nieces. But we sort of knew this. We sort of knew there was something sick for this individual, you know.
1: Oh. Yeah. What a horrible piece of work! Yeah, good well, name for him.
2: I think he nailed the name. Yeah, the yes. human wart. Because his, his his face was all covered in warts, and maybe that's why he hated people. I don't know, you know, having a clue really what why he hated people so much and why he was so sadistic, you know. He just had this enjoyment at everything, you know. And he was notorious for urinating on prisoners sleeping at night. No, you know, he just urinated through the, the door try to urinate into your mouth and all things like this here, you know, he was just a real disgusting individual. God,
1: you guys were treated like rats.
2: Well, this is what they thought, you know, this is what they thought of us, you know, we were the lowest of of them, you know.
1: How long was it until you finally had a wash?
2: I had a wash after the protest sort of way ended, and that was about eight, almost eight and a half years later. You didn't wash for eight years? Hadn't washed for eight years, hadn't shaved, had a big beard. Long, long hair down, down my back. When I went to the mirror, I couldn't look in the mirror. I sort of I shaved blind. I cut everything I could. I shaved everything I could blind because I was terrified to look at my face. I hadn't seen myself in eight years, and I was scared of what I looked like, you know. It took a long time for me to get the courage up to slowly look in the mirror. And when I seen myself, I was a wee bit sad because I was a young boy at the time, you know. And I, I looked at this face, and it was like this... This elderly man was nigh me. It was it was very hard to cope with for a long, long time. You know, mentally, physically as well. You know,
1: the things you guys went through is crazy. Like the, mentally and physically, I mean, the beatings are one thing, and they sound horrific. And but mentally, mentally, I just can't get wrap my head around some of the stuff that you guys had to go through. And the the hunger strikes they started while you were in prison, didn't they?
2: Yeah, they were still on. This is one of the reasons why we ended. The no-wash protest, this is one of the reasons why we decided to stop uh, spreading excrement on the walls, was to give the, the hunger strike full publicity. So as we well would be taking publicity from them and we wanted to, everybody to focus outside, all our supporters, the whole world, is to focus on one thing, and that was the hunger strikers. And that was the reason why we stopped the, the no-wash protest and we started washing. The, the hunger strikers, when they got to a certain condition, they were taken out of the cells and they were brought down to the prison hospital, and that's where they died. Quite sad.
1: It's so sad. It's really, really yeah, sad. Yeah, it's
2: heartbreaking. Heartbreaking.
1: Were the people that you knew?
2: Oh, yeah. I knew Bobby Sands. I knew Joe. Joe McDonald was next door to me, good friend of mine. Big Karen Dock was my cellmate in Common Road Jail. Yeah, I knew quite, I would say I you know six of them personally out of the 10 lads that died, you know. So I, I would say I was good friends were six of them, you know.
1: So heartbreaking.
2: Yeah, it's terrible. There was
1: some, I mean, I want to say good moments, but there was some morale-boosting moments, one in particular where there was a big escape. Wasn't yes. there? What was your role in that? 19 people escaped.
2: Yeah, 19. Well, actually 30, 30 escaped. 30, God, 32 or something got out into the camp grounds you know out of the jail grounds got right down to the very last gate when there was a big fisty fight you know screws started fighting with prisoners who were escaping so about 19 of the prisoners escaped outright forever you know they got completely away others were caught at the same time you know but had money to get out of the prison itself out of hitch blocks and as i say i stayed behind because i was my time was almost up and they asked me just to make sure that there was chaos that they couldn't find photographs of prisoners things like this, burn everything that was of value to the screws so as they would have no information who got away, make it as confusing as possible, you know. So I and a few other comrades were able to manage to help the lads escape, which was, you know, quite proud of.
1: How much fun was that?
2: It was great fun. Because for once we tied the screws up, we had them all there. And it was the first oh, time. you nine, tied you them had, up,
1: you captured them.
2: Oh yeah, we captured the screws that were left there, you know, they were all they were shitting themselves, you know. We had them all tied up. And I just kept thinking, what I'm going to do to you. But thankfully, my OC had a cooler head. And he says, "Do not touch the screws. We do want any harm coming to them because this will be used as propaganda that the screws were beat up and all this here. Right? And we do not want. We do not want revenge. But I swear to God, I wanted to kill them. You know, because I thought what you've done to me, you destroyed my life, and I hear you are whimpering, asking for mercy from me. You know." And only for TLC being a better person, saying, no, no harm will come to these men, despite what they did on us. Let's do what we have to do and keep them safe. And that's the way it was.
1: Would you have killed one of them if he wasn't
2: there? Oh, without a doubt. No, without this guy. This guy tortured you for eight years. What, what would you do? He kept you kidnapped in a hole in the ground. And then eight years later, you get out and you had a chance to get revenge. Would you shake, bam, a paint. Would you forgive them? You know, I laugh at all these movies where they forgive. I, I don't forgive. You know, I can't forgive because they've never asked, they've never apologized to me. They've never told me they're sorry. How can I forgive somebody that doesn't say they're sorry to me? Not one of them has ever come forward and say, look, it was terrible times. We did terrible things. I'm sorry for what I did. I would respect them. Then. You know, I would say, well, fair play to you, but they've never done that. They've never once apologized for the things that they did, you know?
1: Jesus, it's, uh, yeah. I was gonna say I completely understand. I can't understand. You just can't get inside someone's head that's been in that situation. Yeah. Like you, you would just carry that, obviously, and do you still carry that to this day? Obviously.
2: Yes. Yes, I, I do, but I shouldn't. Mm. My wife, and my kids, you know, they say, Dad, you know, you gotta get rid of this this hatred. And I'm a very good person, but I can't forgive somebody that did something to me and has never come to me and said, I'm sorry. Mm. That's all I've asked. I'm sorry for what I did. And I will forgive them, but they've never come once. Never once said to the prisoners, we shouldn't have done it. We were under instructions. It was terrible times. We, you know, we were cards or whatever. But please forgive us for what we did use. I would forgive them. You know, I can't speak for other prisoners. I can speak for myself.
1: We're gonna leave it there for this episode, but make sure you join us for part two of Sam's story, where we move to New York. And Sam pulls off one of the biggest robberies in American history.
2: We put all the, put the van in this garage, underground garage. We went and it took us a, a couple of hours to calm down. We went out and started to count the money, you know. And I was hoping I said, please God, let there be 100,000. Even if it's only 50,000, I'll be happy, you know. Just give me a good bit of money, you know. But of course, we went into millions and millions. And I said, what the fuck, you know? What the fuck have we done here, you know? Because this means yeah, is going to come after us. So big time, you know, it's going to be in all new, you know, the news headlines and all, you
1: know. Sam's story really kicks it up a notch next week. So make sure you've hit subscribe on your podcast app. And we'll talk again next week.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online